0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List, Year of War and Peace. Talking about Book 3, uh, Chapter 8. What are the discussion prompts you? How realistic do you think Rostov's impression and narration of the Tsar is? Do you think the Tsar is as competent and wonderful as Rostov thinks? How important do you think is the Tsar's physical presence to the men? Seems very important. These guys are obsessed with the Tsar. Close to the Edge 48 says, I think it's pretty clear that Rostov has a very idealized view of the Sovereign. He's pretty wrapped up in some very nationalist ideas. Definitely a different time period, but I can't help compare Rostov's devotion to that of more contemporary leaders that have had cults of personality. The presence of the Sovereign on the battlefield is huge. I think that Rostov fawns pretty hard over the Sovereign, but if his perspective is any indicator of how others feel, it's definitely got to be a morale bo- a morale boost. That, and it seems like those to perform an impressive feat on the battlefield, seem to be able to move beyond their station. I'm sure that makes people from all statuses fight harder. Twisted Every, wa- every Way says, okay, let's settle down there a little bit, Rostov thinking he would die if the Emperor spoke to him, or ready to run into the fire if you should ask. This chapter reminded me of like the crowd of teenage girls at a boy band concert. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit... He's fangirling. That's what he's doing. Oh, fangirling. I should use the word fangirling in that chapter somewhere. Rips to 66 says, Rostov continues making me, to make me cringe. His fanatical fascination with the Tsar is rather off-putting. But then again... Fanatical devotion like that in anyone makes me cringe. Rostov is young, and still rather naive and idealistic. The Tsar's appearance provides meaning and hope for him and everyone else, very much like the appearance of a rock star or cult leader. The Tsar's presence energizes and motivates the soldiers. This chapter came as a surprise to me, though. I didn't expect Rostov to behave all fangirly at the presence of royalty. Squirrel 99 said... We are definitely getting a deeper sense of who Rostov is in these last couple of chapters. He seems quite immature and fanatical in his swooning over the Tsar. I think he has made the Tsar into a god and I doubt the Tsar will measure up in the end. I'm sure the reality is that any visit of a cult leader of that status would boost the soldiers' confidence to fight for their country, whether or not he is actually worthy of them laying down their lives for him. Alright. Let's read a chapter, shall we? We're going to be reading Maud today. This podcast is brought to you by patreon.com slash list. If you want to support the podcast, you can do it there. Now, what are we up to here? Chapter 9. Are we up to Chapter 9? Yes, we are. The day after the review, Boris, in his best uniform and with his comrade Berg's best wishes for success, Rode to Olmutz to see Bolkonsky, wishing to profit by his friendliness and obtain for himself the best post he could, preferably that of an adjutant to some important personage, a position in the army which seemed to him most attractive. It is all very well for Rostov, whose father sends him 10,000 rubles at a time, to talk about not wishing to cringe to anybody and not be anyone's lackey. But I, who have nothing but my brains, have to make a career, and must not miss opportunities, but must avail myself of them, he reflected. He did not find Prince Andrei in Ulmutz that day, but the appearance of the town where the headquarters and the diplomatic corps were stationed, and the two emperors were living with their suites, households, and courts, only strengthened his desire to belong to that higher world. He knew no one... And despite his smart guardsman's uniform, all these exalted personages passing in the streets in their elegant carriages, with their plumes, ribbons, and medals, both courtiers and military men, seemed so immeasurably above him and insignificant officers of the guards that they not only did not wish to, but simply could not be aware of his existence. At the quarters of the comrade of the commander-in-chief Kutuzov, where he inquired for Bolkonsky. All the adjutants and even the orderlies looked at him as if they wished to impress on him that a great many officers like him were always coming there, and that everybody was heartily sick of them. In spite of this, or rather because of it, next day on November fifteenth, after dinner, he went again. Uh, sorry. He went again to Ulmuts, and entering the house occupied by Kutuzov, asked for Bolkonsky, Prince. Andre was in, and Boris was shown into a large hall, probably formerly used for dancing, but in which five beds now stood, and furniture of various kinds, a table, chairs, and a clavichord. One adjutant, nearest the door, was sitting at the table in a Persian dressing-ground, writing. Another, the red-stout Nesvitsky, lay on a bed, with his arms under his head, laughing with an officer who had sat down beside him. A third was playing a Viennese waltz on the clavichord, while a fourth, lying on the clavichord, sang the tune. Bolkonski was not there. None of these gentlemen changed his position on seeing Boris. The one who was writing and whom Boris addressed turned round crossly and told him Bolskonsky was on duty and that he should go through the door on the left into the reception room if he wished to see him. Boris thanked him and went to the reception room where he found some ten officers and generals. When he entered Prince Andrei, his eyes drooping contemptuously with that peculiar expression of polite weariness, which plainly says, "If I were not a, not if it were not my duty, I would not talk to you for a moment," was listening to an old Russian general with decorations, who stood very erect, almost on tiptoe, with a soldier's obsequious expression on his purple face, reporting something. Very well, then, be so good as to wait," said Prince Andrei to the general in Russian, speaking with the French intonation he affected when he wished to speak contemptuously, and noticing Boris Prince André paying no more heed to the general, who ran after him imploring him to hear something more, nodded and turned to him with a cheerful smile. At that moment Boris clearly realised that he had been surmised that in the army, beside the subordination and discipline prescribed in the military code, which he and the others knew in the regiment, there was another more important subordination, which made this tight-laced, purple-faced general wait respectfully, while Captain Prince Andrew, for his own pleasure, chose to chat with Lieutenant Trubetskoy. More than ever was Boris resolved to serve in future, not according to the written code, but under this unwritten law. He felt now that merely by having been recommended to Prince Andre, he had already risen above the general who, at the front, had the power to annihilate him, a lieutenant of the guards. Prince Andrei came up to him and shook his hand. I am very sorry you did not find me in yesterday. I was fussing about with Germans all day. We went with Weyrother to survey the dispositions. When Germans start being accurate, there's no end to it. Boris smiled as if he understood what Prince Andrei was alluding to as something generally known, but it was the first time he had heard Weyrother's name and even the term dispositions. "'Well, my dear fellow, so you still want to be an adjutant. "'I think I have been thinking about you.' "'Yes, I was thinking,' for some reason Boris could not help blushing, "'of asking the commander-in-chief. "'He has had a letter from Prince Kuragin about me. "'I only wanted to ask him because I hear the guards won't be in action,' "'he added as if an apology. "'All right, all right, we'll talk it over,' replied Prince Andre. "'Only let me report this gentleman's business, and I shall be at your disposal.' While Prince Andre went to report about the purple-faced general, that gentleman, evidently not sharing Boris's conception of the advantages of the unwritten code of subordination, looked so fixedly at the presumptuous lieutenant who had prevented his finishing what he had to say to the adjutant that Boris felt uncomfortable. He turned away and waited impatiently for Prince Andre's return from the commander-in-chief's room. You see, my dear fellow, I have been thinking about you, said Prince Andre when they had gone into the large room where the clavichord was. It's no use your going to the commander in chief. He would say a lot of pleasant things, ask you to dinner. That would not be as bad as regards the unwritten code, thought Boris. But nothing more would come of it. There will soon be a battalion of us aides de camp and adjutants, but this is what we'll do. I have a good friend, an adjutant general, and an excellent fellow, Prince Dolgorukov. Dolgorukov. And though you may not know it, the fact is that now Kutuzov has his staff, and all of us count for nothing. Everything is now centred around the Emperor. So, we will go to Dolgorukov. I have to go there anyhow, and I have already spoken to him about you. We shall see whether he cannot attach you to himself or find a place for you somewhere nearer the sun. Prince Andrei always became specially keen when he had to guide a young man and help him to worldly success. Under cover of obtaining help of this kind for another, which from pride he would never accept for himself, he kept in touch with the circle which confers success and which attracted him. He very readily took up Boris's cause and went with him to Dolgorukov. It was late in the evening when they entered the palace at Olmutz occupied by the emperors and their retinues. That same day, a council of war had been held, in which all the members of the Hofgrisgraf and both emperors took part. At that council, contrary to the views of the old generals, Kutuzov and Prince Schwarzenberg, it had been decided to advance immediately and give battle to Bonaparte. The council of war... Was just over when Prince Andrew, accompanied by Boris, arrived at the palace to find Dolgorukov. Everyone at headquarters was still under the spell of the day's council at which the party of the young had triumphed. The voices of those who counseled delay and advised waiting for something else before advancing had been so completely silenced and their arguments confuted by such conclusive evidence of the advantages of attacking that what had been discussed at the council the coming battle, and the victory that would certainly result from it, no longer seemed to be in the future, but in the past. All the advantages were on our side. Our enormous forces, undoubtedly superior to Napoleon's, were concentrated in one place. The troops, inspired by the Emperor's presence, were eager for action. The strategic position where the operations would take place was familiar in all its details to the Austrian general Weyrutha. A lucky accident had ordained that the Austrian army should manoeuvre the previous year on the very fields where the French had now to be fought. The adjacent locality was known and shown in every detail on the maps. And Bonaparte, evidently weakened, was undertaking nothing. Dolgorukov, one of the warmest advocates of an attack, had just returned from the council, tired and exhausted, but eager and proud of the victory that had been gained. Prince Andrei introduced his protégé, but Prince Dolgurikov politely and firmly, pressing his hand, said nothing to Boris, and evidently unable to suppress the thoughts which were uppermost in his mind at that moment, addressed Prince André in French. Ah, my dear fellow, what a battle we have gained. God grant that the one that will result from it will be as victorious. However, dear fellow, he said abruptly and eagerly, I must confess to having been unjust to the Austrians, and especially to Weyruther, what exactitude, what minuteness, what knowledge of the locality, what foresight for every eventuality, every possibility, even to the smallest detail. No, my dear fellow, no conditions better than our present ones could have been devised. This combination of Austrian precision with Russian valour, what more could be wished for? So the attack is definitely resolved, on, asked Bolkonsky. And do you know, my dear fellow, it seems to me that Bonaparte has decidedly lost bearings, you know that a letter was received from him today from the Emperor, for the Emperor. Dolgorukov smiled and s- smiled significantly. Is that so? And what did he say? inquired Bolkonsky. What can he say? tra di ra and so on, merely to gain time. I tell you, he is in our hands, it's certain. But what was most amusing, he continued with a sudden good-natured laugh, was that we could not think how to address the reply. If not as consul and of course not as emperor it seemed to me it should be general bonaparte but between not recognizing him as emperor and calling him general bonaparte there is a difference remarked Bolkonsky." that's just it interrupted Dolgorukov quickly laughing you know bilibin he's a very clever fellow he suggested addressing him as usurper and enemy of mankind Dolgorukov laughed <clears throat> merrily only that said Bolkonsky. All the same, it was Bilibin who found a suitable form for the address. He is wise and clever f- fellow. What was it? To the head of the French government. Or oh, chef du gouvernement francis, said Dolgirikov with grave satisfaction. Good, wasn't it? Yes, but he will dislike it extremely, said Bolkonsky. Oh, yes, very much. My brother knows him. He's dined with him, the present emperor, more than once in Paris, and tells me he never met a more cunning or subtle diplomatist. You know, a combination of French adroitness and Italian play-acting. Do you know the tale about him and Count Markov? Count Markov was the only man who knew how to handle him. You know the story of the handkerchief. It is delightful. And the talkative Dolgorukov, turning now to Boris, now to Prince Andrei, told how Bonaparte, wishing to test Markov, our ambassador, purposely dropped a handkerchief in front of him and stood looking at Markov, probably expecting Markov to pick it up for him, and how Markov immediately dropped his own beside it and picked it up without touching Bonaparte's. Delightful," said Bolkonski, "But I have to—I have come to you, Prince, as a petitioner on behalf of this young man. You see. But before Prince Andrei could finish, an aide-de-camp came in to summon Dolgorukov to the Emperor. Oh, what a nuisance!" said Dolgorukov, getting up hurriedly and pressing the hands of Prince Andrei and Boris. You know, I should be very glad to do to do all in my power, both for you. And for this dear young man, again he pressed the hand of the latter, with an expression of good-natured, sincere and animated levity. But you see, another time. Boris was excited by the thought of being so close to the higher powers as he felt himself to be at that moment. He was conscious that here he was in contact with the springs that set in motion the enormous movements of the mass of which, in his regiment, he felt himself a tiny, obedient and insignificant atom. They followed Prince Dolgorukov out into the corridor and met, coming out of the door of the Emperor's room by which Dolgorukov had entered, a short man in civilian clothes with a clever face and sharply projecting jaw which, without spoiling his face, gave him, him a peculiar vivacity and shiftiness of expression. The short man nodded to Dolgorukov as to an intimate friend and stared, stared at Prince Andrei with cool intensity. Walking straight towards him and evidently expecting him to bow or to step out of his way, Prince Andre did neither. A look of animosity appeared on his face, and the other turned away and went down the side of the corridor. Who was that? Asked Boris. He is one of the most remarkable, but to me most unpleasant of men, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Prince Adam Czartoryski. Czartoryski. It is such men as he who decide the fate of nations," added Bolkonsky with a sigh he could not suppress as they passed out of the palace. Next day the army began its campaign, and up to the very battle of Austerlitz, Boris was unable to see either Prince Andrei or Dolgorukov again, and remained for a while with the Ismailov regiment. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Whew, what a snooze fest. That was a bit of a boring one. Have your say about that chapter over on the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening. See you tomorrow.